Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. As health systems around the globe grapple with addressing inequity in healthcare, one of the most tangible opportunities for change is the chronic underrepresentation of individuals by race, ethnicity, or sex in clinical trials. While efforts have been made by regulatory agencies like the FDA to develop guidance aimed at improving representation, meaningful change will require action from those organizations investing, designing, and executing the trials themselves. Today, Ryan and I are joined by Dynamics' Matt Howard to discuss how life science companies can integrate diversity, equity, and inclusion within the clinical trials process to facilitate better outcomes. We know that across the industry, there has been a major focus on improving health equity. Matt, why is DEI so important when it comes to product development and clinical trials? Good science and good business are inherently inclusive. And by that, I mean that to do those things well, you have to include everyone. And the entire purpose of clinical trials is to ensure that drugs are safe and effective for all of the patients that are going to be taking those drugs. And to ensure those outcomes, we have to include everyone throughout the clinical trials process. Companies who prioritize DEI in product development can expect a couple of things. One, they're gonna reach more patients and providers overall. They're also going to develop more differentiated and innovative therapies. They're gonna promote greater health equity in underrepresented patient communities, which has been a huge focus across the industry over the past couple of years. They're also gonna improve collaboration with key stakeholders interested in improving therapies and their efficacy. And that includes academic medical institutions, the principal investigators and staff delivering care to patients during clinical trials, the technology vendors that help support clinical trials, CROs, regulatory bodies, a number of different stakeholders throughout the process. It's also a way to improve the company's reputation across the industry with patients and providers alike. And there's also a risk of not including DEI as part of this process. And companies who choose not to build DEI into their strategy are missing out on an opportunity to expand the reach of life-changing therapies while isolating large populations of potential consumers. Not only is there a moral risk here, there's also a business risk here that needs to be accounted for. That's not to say that these key points you raise up is an easy undertaking. And, you know, when I listen to you talk about all the complex stakeholders involved, I mean that from both an operational standpoint and also a mind shift perspective and change management. These trials at a macro level, it's difficult to kind of change course and create sites to underserved communities and developing investigators that really reflect the society that we live in. And, but we have to do it, right? And there's a micro level acknowledgement as well that I mentioned around shift change. We have to make sure we're educating these stakeholders that you mentioned so that they can provide sustainable relationships within these communities that are underserved so that we can get the right folks within these clinical trials. 
And I say that because there is a longstanding legacy on inequity and systemic focus on white straight men as the default patient for these clinical trials. We think about the historical legacy of, of injustices around medical and clinical trials. I really invite you, if you don't already know, to learn about the Tuskegee study, which was done over almost 40 years and then not so long ago from the 30s and the 70s, where untreated syphilis in black males were done. And the U.S. Public Health Service were responsible for this. And it, it covered a group of several hundred black men. So people know about that, right, in these underserved communities, and they are very reticent to enter these. So there's a lot of moving parts here. And there's also the lack of awareness and understanding of what all of this is. So operationally, there's factors like getting to an office, right, to get be a patient in the clinical trial, you know, taking times off. They, they mirror patient access issues that we talk about in the broader healthcare spectrum all the time. You mentioned how deeply rooted some of these challenges are in the historical legacy of clinical research and the healthcare industry. And it's important to note that one pharmaceutical company is not going to be able to bridge all of those gaps. However, the only way that we're going to be able to close those gaps is if every pharmaceutical company works to close those gaps. While they might not be able to address every single component of the social determinants of health and access and all of these pieces, they can all do their part in partnership with other stakeholders in the industry to make meaningful change. And I think that's what we're going to get into today is some more examples of how to make those changes throughout the process. Thanks, Matt and Ryan. You really brought to light the complexity of this issue and how something that seemed really simple, as easy as just recruiting more diverse patients, is actually not going to be a sufficient solve to improve equity and inclusion within the clinical trial process and that it will take efforts from everyone across the industry to be able to do that. Matt, I'd love to dive into what are some specific actions that our listeners involved in clinical trial design and conduct should be thinking about when it comes to improving DE&I in their studies? There's been a hyper-focus on recruiting diverse patients as the priority to solve this gap, and that's certainly a component of it. But it's not the only thing that has to happen to close these gaps or to better serve these patients. This cannot be a bolt-on to running clinical trials the way they have always been run. This has to be embedded within the entire process, like you mentioned. And it really needs to span the full life cycle from startup through conduct, through closeout, into commercialization. You asked specifically about design. One of the things we've seen here is that there is a history of pretty restrictive exclusion criteria for a lot of clinical trials. And while there might be good reason for some of those in some studies in specific therapeutic areas, oftentimes those things have become a little bit more of a habit than an intentional, thoroughly, scientifically based reason for including those as part of the trial. Of course, those exclusion criteria are there to protect patients and to protect the study so that it can meet its endpoints. But it's important that those aren't overly restrictive and therefore excluding 
key patient sets that are going to need to use this drug in the real world. Organizations need to take a closer look at those exclusion criteria, even within a specific asset as it moves from one phase of the clinical trial to another. The exclusion criteria that you have in phase one into phase two might not be necessary for a phase three trial. And so it's important to consistently and constantly evaluate what is the right scientific reason for these criteria. The other piece, in addition to exclusion criteria, is around the broader protocol development and the broader design of the study. And so there's a lot of pieces here where there's new technologies that can be used that have to be accounted for in evaluating how the drug's going to affect different populations and who's going to be able to access the trial throughout its duration. And so in addition to the technologies, the exclusion criteria, deciding what data is going to be captured so that we can effectively do subgroup analysis, all of that needs to be a conversation up front and all of that happens far before the patient recruitment components of a clinical trial. Yeah, Matt, I think about this in a little bit of a macroeconomics standpoint from a supply and demand. So there's challenges right off the bat. Dropouts for clinical trial patients are high. You know, a majority of potential trial participants, in the United States specifically, they live more than two hours away from the nearest study center. One more thing I'd add before we talk about solving for that is this historical focus and allocation of resources to large academic medical centers that are typically in areas of urban cities, which, which covers a lot of folks, but it underrepresents individuals and some of these folks that we really need in these trials from rural and less affluent urban communities. So it's a real issue. So add to the fact that increased government and public funding goes to those academic medical centers now that could be kind of transferred to other locations or decentralized locations. And, you know, we've talked about a lot of community hospitals closing, but there are still community hospitals that can be reallocated and retransformed into this. And we need to be providing new technologies and tools to make these sites attractive. Absolutely, Ryan. And one of the reasons that that has happened is because there's been a hyper focus on reducing the timeline of clinical research and also trying to reduce the costs. These trials take a long time and they cost a lot of money. So a lot of those plays have been made for efficiency. But that comes at the cost of some other things. So this has to be a conscious decision and investment to undo some of those things or to make diversity, equity, inclusion a priority throughout the process. Ryan, you had mentioned decentralization. That's definitely an area we see gaining a lot of traction in the industry right now, especially amidst the global pandemic. When the pandemic started, it made it really hard for people to stay on protocols with the treatments and the trials that they were in because accessing those hospitals became a risk. And so there has been a significant amount of focus on how do we get the drugs to patients directly? How do we design trials to be not 100% anchored with in-person visits if there's ways to, to make those decentralized? How do we leverage technology, all of the apps that we have access to as far as 
electronic clinical outcome assessments or electronic patient reported outcomes. There's also a huge increase of telehealth visits and using of electronic consent forms. So as we see the technology components become more advanced, those are ways that we can access and better serve some of those underserved patient populations that you mentioned. That said, this all has to be done very thoughtfully because what we've seen with digital innovation across the healthcare industry in general is that some of these efforts can actually widen the gaps that they're meant to decrease because there's limited access to those technologies. And so it has to be done in a very thoughtful, intentional way where patients and physicians are educated on the benefits and the ways to use these technologies, but it's certainly a piece of the puzzle. Many health systems and IDNs have introduced a, a, an actionable way to help increase health equity across their community. I think that part of the health equity strategy and the priority of that has to be around clinical research. And what we're seeing slowly but surely is providers and the leadership within providers understand that as part of a health equity play and making sure that they have a true strategy around their clinical research plan. And without that guiding force or guiding light, the folks that you talked about, the providers, the clinicians, those folks that are partnering with these life science companies, out of all the things that they're trying to do in their day-to-day -day life, they need to make sure that that's part of the priority to increase outcomes or improve outcomes, I should say, and, and add value to patients. It'll definitely take efforts across stakeholders, whether it's life science organizations or providers in the community. And to go back to your earlier point, Ryan, it will take efforts on both sides of the equation, right? You talked a lot about supply and demand, and I think of that in terms of access and appetite. It's not just that if we build it, that patients will be on board and, and willing just because they are able to participate in these trials, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that change management space and being really thoughtful on the softer side of how do we engage with potential trial participants to not only recruit them, but to retain them throughout the course of the trial. And that can look like deploying tailored messaging, making sure that you're using the appropriate language for the community you're serving, having the right translations or right language-based resources available to participants. It could look like conducting education campaigns, really not only trying to drive awareness, but to embed trust, improve health literacy, really outreach to the community. And this is where other organizations can really be a key strategic partner for life science teams, for provider teams as they're trying to engage these communities. It might look like working with other social service groups. It might look like working with community organizations like churches that are already established. And then once patients are really in the trial process, making sure you don't lose that lens of support for maintaining equity, maintaining inclusion. That could look like having patient navigators come on board to really help this newer patient set understand the clinical trial process as they're navigating it. Because I think for anyone, it is extremely challenging and unknown, particularly in disease states where there's a high complexity of outcomes and variation in treatment. 
but particularly for these newer patients who aren't as used to engaging with the system or have been chronically underrepresented, they could use a little extra support in helping navigate and make those informed decisions to be empowered users of healthcare within the trial construct. Clearly, I'm coming from a provider bias here. I, I just feel like I have to add something to that point that you made, which is so important. Many providers and health systems have that infrastructure right now. For the last 10 to 15 years, uh, value-based care has been both a concept and active part of their lives. So nurse navigators, uh, the idea of a patient-centered medical home and the ambulatory network, all of these things that have driven folks to areas of care, whether that's for wellness exams, keeping up with the preventative care, have been put into place for the last 10 or 15 years. There is a large blind spot in the provider community on the effectiveness and the importance of clinical trials and clinical research. So I think that there's a really important opportunity here to take the infrastructure that exists from a people perspective and make sure that the communities know how important these clinical trials and specifically how inclusion and diversity involved in this clinical research plan can be executed a little more smartly than people actually think. There's an example I'd like to pull through here to really drive your point home, Jen, and help explain some of the nuance that exists within this world. It's June, it's Pride Month, there's a lot going on out there around how to better support and celebrate the LGBTQ community, right? But if we think about the LGBTQ community when it comes to clinical research, that's an element of diversity beyond race and ethnicity, which has been a large focus of this conversation in the public discourse, right? But still a very important piece of the puzzle and a component of identity that needs to be accounted for. But it's not a monolith. And so when we break that acronym down a little bit and we think about gay men and lesbians being included in clinical research, there's not a biological difference there, right? Like that inclusion is going to be more focused on the tailored messaging and the person-centric care delivered to people and being thoughtful about those interactions. But there's not an actual, as far as I understand, consideration there for the biological difference of how those drugs run around. That's different, however, when it comes to trans folk. And that is something that needs to be addressed more in that exclusion criteria, that data collection component of the biological realities of how those drugs might interact differently within trans bodies that needs to be accounted for much earlier in the process. So when we're thinking about inclusion within these macro categories of identity, there's not a one answer to that inclusion or to that recruitment. It has to be identified and discussed at each step of the, the clinical trial process. Matt, I like how you're able to kind of dig deeply into the different demographics that we're talking about a little more thoughtfully. A part of DEI is understanding the idea of intersectionality. If you identify as part of the LGBTQ community and are also a Hispanic woman, right? Those elements and those, those different layers and levels of who you are as a person are very important for clinical trials as well. So identifying and understanding that I think is a journey that many of our healthcare professionals are on 
and remembering intersectionality as, a, as another component of this is really important. That idea of intersectionality is one of the things that makes the data collection and analysis component of clinical research so important and why this has to be considered very early in the process. Traditionally, statistical analysis of subgroup has focused on ruling out inconsistencies to, with the assumption that that means treatment is equally effective in all subgroups. However, we need to flip that a little bit and make sure that we are looking for affirmative evidence that these therapies are effective for all patients at the point of those intersections. That needs to be accounted for in the data collection component and also in the analysis component. That said, that can take a lot of time, and that is one of the biggest areas of pushback for prioritizing this is, will this expand our timelines? And I would say that there's a risk there that that does have to be accounted for, but if you're building this in throughout the process and it isn't a bolt-on or surprise at the end, then you can account for that in your timelines and make sure that you have the time to do that, you have the populations to be able to do that subgroup analysis. We have to get beyond speed being the only KPI. Absolutely an important one. We want these drugs to get to patients faster. We want to condense the cycle time that it takes. We're seeing a huge effort to improve the interoperability of data between provider systems and EHRs, everyone's favorite topic, and the pharmaceutical companies' electronic data capture systems. And that will help speed up some of these cycle times and also hopefully help with some of the robustness of the data available to researchers. Those KPIs are going to have to be really intentional when it comes to including DEI in clinical research, and we have to think beyond the speed component there. I'll also say that those KPIs are going to have to be tied to specific initiatives to validate that those initiatives or those technology changes or those protocol design changes are having the desired effect and reaching the desired outcome and not just adding cost or time to a trial, but truly reaching the goals that they're meeting. I'll also point out here that when it comes to patient recruitment and the focus of recruiting diverse populations, it shouldn't be a blanket goal. It shouldn't be based off of US census data or a country's representation. That analysis or those goals need to be rooted in the epidemiology of the disease that the drug is aiming to treat or prevent. And that means that it's going, those targets for diverse patient recruiting are going to look different for each study. And so again, embedding it throughout the process to be hyper-focused is super important here. I think that's such an important mindset shift for leaders to make, Matt, when it comes to being really thoughtful about the KPIs that you put in place when it comes to improving diversity, equity, inclusion in clinical trials, and making sure that you're constantly evaluating them to see that the interventions you're making are effective and not harmful. 
and reframing what good looks like. It's not just speed. It's not just certain recruitment numbers. Getting a little bit deeper in terms of what are you trying to achieve from an equity perspective. So a metric could look like what partnerships do we have in place to engage specific communities? Who are we working with across the industry to be able to affect meaningful change? We have seen a ton of outreach efforts, and Ryan had talked about this a little bit from the provider side of the existing infrastructure with patient advocacy groups, with health literacy initiatives, with better serving patients. Rather than reinventing the wheel, it's important to bring all of those pieces together. So how do we choose those partnerships to make the incremental change that we need to make and that we want to see. Because like I said at the the top of the podcast, this is not going to happen overnight and one pharmaceutical company is not going to be able to close all of the deep gaps that exist when it comes to health equity. However, those partnerships are opportunities for us to close those gaps and do it in a faster way. And, you know, Rising tides raise all ships here. So it's important for every company to be doing this, to look for opportunities to partner with one another of best serving the populations. It's important for pharmaceutical companies to invest in meaningful relationships or organizations that are already working to drive those changes within those communities and to better equip them with information and the tools to bring more people into the clinical research fold to access these life-saving therapies and drugs. And so it's a cross-industry effort, and it's going to take some time, but there has been such a strong interest and movement here. We've seen the FDA make this a priority in some of their recommendations and guidance for the industry. And we expect that this is only going to increase in focus for the industry. And I'm super excited to see where it goes over the course of the next year, five years, 10 years uh, to help close this gap. I love that we had the chance to really dive deep into this topic. So thanks, Matt, for joining us and bringing your expertise To our listeners who are interested in learning more about this topic, I encourage you to check out our insight, Integrating Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Throughout Clinical Trials, currently available on our website, and to stay tuned for a real-life example with a case study that brings it to life later this month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health Podcast and explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.